The spiritual battle is always won through the Word of God. And we're looking at Jesus, perfectly sinless, fully God, fully man. He needs scripture to actually fight the earthly temptations that we face. Don't you think that we will need scripture all the more? And every single time that is Jesus's weapon is that he uses scripture, that he doesn't just take scripture out of context like the enemy does, but he actually understands what the word of God is saying about who God is. Well, hello there, and welcome back to How to Study the Bible. My name is Nicole Eunice, and it is just my delight to join you each and every week for us to spend some time in the Word of God together. We use a method here called the Alive Method, which is just four simple questions that we ask of Scripture, and we're spending this whole year walking through Scripture together as we um, journey through life, and we explore the trials and the temptations and the joys and the victories of this human life that we share together. And right now we're in a series called True Life, where we're looking at the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4, and what this, the beginning of Jesus's ministry, teaches us about the culmination of his work here on earth and what that means for us today. So if you're just joining us, I encourage you to go back to the last two episodes and pick up with us um, then when you're done with those. So we're going to finish on the third temptation of Christ. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 11 today. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Okay, so that's what it says. A little context, if you need a reminder from the last couple episodes, a little context here. Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, we have seen that Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. He was sent by the Spirit to be baptized. And at that time, there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. So that is the context of what has happened before this. And then scripture says that the spirit then led him into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. It does not say that the spirit tested him. And that's a very important distinction. It says the spirit led him to a place where he experienced weakness. He was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And in that weakness, in a moment of opportunity, the enemy came to him to attempt to tempt him. So we talked in the first week about how the enemy can use times that were low, times that were weak, times that were physically weak or emotionally drained or spiritually distant. Those are times of opportunity where the enemy has an opportunity to try to tempt us to believe something, maybe 90% true, and then twist it 10% at the end into something else. And that there's a formula here that we see playing out. In the first week, we talked about this temptation of comfort. The second week, we talked about the temptation of validation, prove who you are. And this week, we're going to talk about the temptation of shortcuts, the temptation of moral relativism. And what I mean by that is the opportunity to 
to take a shortcut on our way to doing good. And this is a very deceptive kind of temptation because the temptation in front of us is don't you want to accomplish and achieve all the things that you know God would want? And that's what we see happening in this particular passage. When we look at what does it say, we want to look at this idea that the devil took um, Jesus to this very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. We know elsewhere in scripture that Satan has been given dominion over this world. He has not been given dominion over the universe. He is not victorious. As one of my commentators said, the devil is defeated, but he is still defiant. And so he offers Jesus all that he has. And this is a very, um, this is the moment in the temptations where the devil becomes a lot less deceptive and a lot more um honest about what he actually wants. And I know that in my own spiritual life, I've seen this and had this experience as well, that sometimes in moments of trial and temptation, when you just kind of hang with it and you resist it, you stand firm, over time, you start to see the temptation for what it really is. It may have looked like one thing. And then over time, you start to realize, oh, wait a second, that's really just an invitation to pride, or that's really just an invitation for me to take a shortcut. That's just an invitation for me to do something that is against what I truly believe. And here in this last bit, we see that uh, the enemy loses his creativity and he goes with a direct temptation, a direct claim. All you have to do, you can have all of these things, all these things that you want, all of this ministry that you're trying to do, you can have all of it if you'll just bow down and worship me. And of course, Jesus says, away from me, Satan. And he again quotes scripture for the third time. So we're going to see in every temptation what Jesus has, what Jesus's weapon is against the battle that is not flesh and blood, but truly is spiritual. The spiritual battle is always won through the word of God. Always. And we're looking at Jesus, perfectly sinless, fully God, fully man. He needs scripture to actually fight the earthly temptations that we face. Don't you think that we will need scripture all the more? And every single time that is Jesus's weapon is that he uses scripture. He understands scripture. We know that from temptation too, that he doesn't just take scripture out of context like the enemy does, but he actually understands what the word of God is saying about who God is. Another commentator said, Jesus always lets God be God. Jesus always lets God be God. He doesn't try to take over for the part that God plays. So what's the backstory here? I want to talk a little bit about um, just because there's so much confusion around this, I do think it's really important to do just a quick cross-reference on what we do know about our enemy. Because depending on the tradition that you grew up in or, or, or where you are currently in your faith, or if you've come, you know, you didn't grow up in the faith, and all of us have some sort of impression of what evil looks like or how and if there is an enemy, um, what we need to know is that we do believe that there is an enemy because because Jesus believed there was an enemy. And we do believe that there's a spiritual battle because Jesus believed there was a spiritual battle. And so even though we have all of these other notions of what that might look like in our life, um, at the end of the day, if we are walking by faith, that the word of God is sort of our supreme reference 
for what reality is, for what's actually true, then at the end of the day, we believe in the enemy because Jesus believed in the enemy. Um, but in addition to that, there's all this other stuff around who the enemy is and how he operates. We have Halloween costumes that are like red devils running around with pitchforks, or you maybe grew up in a tradition where actually maybe in some ways it was even overemphasized the the role of the enemy in your life. And and maybe even as one friend recently said to me, um, she sort of caught the idea that the enemy is, is got the same power as God, that there's really, they're fighting it out and that they have the same amount of authority. And so I just want to bring to mind a couple of things that, again, this is not not from any additional study helps. This is just me searching for what does the Bible say about this enemy or the devil. So we know in our text note from chapter 4, verse 1, that the word devil, Satan, enemy is in the original language, it means accuser or slanderer. So the enemy is going to use words to accuse us of not having the truth, right? The, the enemy is going to take the truth and slander it. And if you look back at this passage that we've been looking at, you see that that's exactly what's happening here. Um, the enemy says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, so again, he's accusing him of what he says his identity is, trying to get him to prove himself. And I know this is not the part we're supposed to be in on this part of it, but just for an application moment, can we all pause and realize how much of our lives we spend being tempted to prove ourselves, being tempted to validate ourselves? Show yourself worthy. Show yourself worthy with your money. Show yourself worthy with your appearance. Show yourself worthy with your achievements. Show yourself worthy with your material things. Show yourself worthy with your relationships. We live in a world that is dominated by this temptation. Show yourself worthy. This is not new. This is a very effective strategy of the enemy, but it is not creative. It is not new. And it is not because the enemy can somehow read your thoughts and be inside of you. It's because he's been studying humanity for all of civilization. And we're not that original. Like this has been an issue all of our humanity, all of our lives. This is, this is actually pointing to this fallen nature where we've been given this glorious, um, purpose and design to actually manifest the image of God. But we also have this great um, sin within us that wants to prove ourselves, that wants to live independently of our creator. And this is the temptation that we continue to see, that we see in this passage and that we see in our lives. So if the enemy is this accuser or slanderer, who is he? What do we know about him? What can we look at to, to understand about him from a web search? So you ready for this? If you're a note taker, you might want to take a couple notes. John 8, 44, there is no truth in him. It says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. This is Jesus speaking. And, here, and here's what it's going to say about who the enemy is. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Have you ever lied so much that you actually started to believe that it was the real story? Have you ever told a story where you exaggerated the story and you told it enough that you actually believed it was reality? 
Have you ever seen a child do this where they, they, they start to believe a total lie, and they just speak it as if it's reality. That is the enemy's language. He is always speaking so much in lies that it's as if it is reality. I, I think he believes it. Um, I think he can sell it so convincingly because he believes it as reality. He is the father of lies. We also know that the enemy is still under the power of God. You can go to the book of Job and read through Job to understand how Satan has to come get permission before he has has authority to move around in the world. We know in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He's talking to Peter. So Satan is still under the dominion of God. This does not mean that God um, ordains evil. But in the mystery of the sovereignty of God, we know that he allows the enemy um, the ability to move in this world. And he uses the enemy as a way to prove his glory and his goodness that some, sometimes in our trials, in our temptations, in our suffering, not sometimes, most of the time, it is there where we come to the end of ourselves where we see uh, what the accuser, who the accuser is for who he really is. And in this last temptation, we see the enemy showing himself for who he really is. When he says to Jesus, just bow down and worship me. That's his ultimate desire is to have those around him worship him, to be in authority over humanity. And so this is kind of his ultimate goal, and he is allowed to move in the world, but he's under the authority of God. He is not equal to God in any way. We also know that the enemy is scheming. It says in Ephesians 6, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. We also know it is possible to resist him. James 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice it doesn't say fight the devil. It doesn't say like, you know, battle it out with the devil. It just says resist. Just hold firm. Just hang tight. (laughs) He will flee if you stand firm. And then finally, in 1 John 3, 8, we know that the enemy's work has already been destroyed. It says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So we know that he's defeated, but we also know that he's defiant and still moving through the world, that he's scheming, that he's lying, and that he's he's actually moving to move against us, but that also he can be resisted, that he will flee, and that he does not have authority over you. He does not have authority over God. He cannot move in his on his own volition, but for a time, The dominion of this world is under his control. At the end of time, when Jesus returns in victory, he will be defeated completely and destroyed completely. But for now, we live in the already, but not yet. We live in this time where the battle still is going on, but we have been equipped to resist to fight that battle. We have been equipped in many ways, just like Jesus in the wilderness was equipped to understand that he had authority and victory over the enemy. We too can be led into places where we realize we have authority and victory over the enemy. Okay, what does it mean? What does this mean? This whole passage, what does this mean um, in the principles of what this tells us about life? About life. Okay, so here's what I wrote down about what does it mean. 
God used testing in Jesus's life, not to prove him wrong, but to prove him righteous. Think about that for a moment. Think about a time where you've done something really difficult and you did it. You didn't think that you could, but then you did. Perhaps you've taken a really, really hard hike or you've, you've done, uh, finished a really hard class. Something was in front of you that you didn't think that you could do, but as it turned out, you could do it. What happens in you when you realize that something that seems impossible is actually possible? Well, we grow stronger. We, we grow firmer in what we believe because of going through that trial and coming to the other side of it. And so when we look at how, how God ordained that Jesus would start his ministry, when we see that how Jesus's ministry started was from this place of saying, hey, going into the wilderness, you're going to experience this testing. You're going to be victorious over this testing, which is a sign of my approval that you are ready for what will come next. And of course, in the, in the cosmic spectrum, what does it mean as well? When we read elsewhere in the New Testament about this idea that Jesus is actually the second Adam, that just as Adam failed to live out the fullness of what God called him to be, Jesus would be the second Adam who would be called to live out the fullness of what God called him to be and be victorious and be able to do it. Moses was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in Exodus in the wilderness. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses received the law, the Ten Commandments after that time. Jesus embodied the law. He like became the law. He taught the law out of that 40 days and 40 nights. That wilderness was a time of testing for God's chosen people. The wilderness was a time of testing for Jesus. As he was proving himself, just as the Israelites failed, Jesus is victorious. So what does this mean for us? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 17 says, Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. That means that when we've said yes to Jesus, all of this victory that I just shared with you about what Jesus has been able to do, that is in our spirit. We are one with that victory in spirit. Jesus himself dwells within us. It says later in 1 Corinthians that Jesus became a living spirit. Jesus himself dwells within us, and all the victory that he has achieved becomes our victory. It will not be done perfectly, but it will be possible. Like, it is possible now for us to stand firm against the enemy's schemes because we have the power of Christ within us. So what does it mean for us? Jesus is our victorious Savior over the power of sin in life and in death. The devil is real. But he has lost his power over us when we are in Christ. Now, you may think, well, Nicole, then why do I still struggle so much? Why do I still fail so much? Oh, this is the journey of humanity, is it not? Is this not the journey that we are all on? But I want to tell you, friend, that what we want is progress in life. We're looking for progress. It's not perfect, but we're looking for progress. And my hope for you is that as you continue to draw near to Jesus, as you continue to spend time in his word, as you get to know him better, as you get to know God better, as you engage in your life every day with the faith to believe that God is engaging with you, what you'll see is that inch by inch, day by day, you will look back in the rearview mirror of your life 
and you will realize, oh, that trial that I failed in years ago, I'm victorious in that now. That temptation that used to be so tempting to me years ago, I am past that now. It is not a it is not a linear journey. It is not just point A to point B. All of us experience five steps back and one step forward. All of us experience times where we seem like we're just turning in circles. All of us experience time where we just are laying down in the dust and we we just can't even rise up. But in Christ we will always rise again. In Christ we will always be victorious. You may be beaten, but you are not defeated. You may feel broken today, but Jesus is still victorious. You may feel like all you can do is survive today, but that itself is victory. We are looking for progress. It will not be perfect. But what you'll see over a lifetime of drawing near to Jesus, what you'll see over a lifetime of leaning into his grace, of receiving his forgiveness, of stepping forward into his mercy day after day, is that eventually you will look in the rearview mirror of your life and you will see that you are not who you once were, that you are still growing in holiness and righteousness, and that the journey is worth it because you are victorious. Amen. Happy Easter, everyone. Thanks for listening to How to Study the Bible with Nicole Eunice, a production of LifeAudio.com and the Salem Web Network. This episode was produced by Kelly Givens and our executive producer, Stephen McGarvey, and edited by Stephen Sanders. If you enjoyed what you heard today, we'd love for you to head over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. It really does help people find us. To learn more about Nicole, you can check out her website at NicoleEunice.com. Her book on how to study the Bible is called Help, My Bible is Alive. And you can find a link to that plus a link to Nicole's site in today's show notes. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.